You're listening to The Itch, a podcast exploring all things allergy, asthma, and immunology. I'm your co-host, Courtney, a real-life allergy, asthma, and eczema girl. And I'm your second host, Dr. Payal Gupta, a board-certified allergy, asthma, and immunology doctor. Courtney and I hope to balance each other out so that we get you all the information that you want and need about allergies, asthma, and immunology. Let's talk about the COVID-19 vaccines. I know there's been a lot of buzz in the allergy community about the vaccine, so we wanted to shed some light on it. We sat down with Dr. Purvi Parikh, a double board certified allergist and immunologist who's been involved with the COVID-19 vaccine since phase one. She talks to us about the science behind the vaccine, the side effects of the vaccine, the allergic reactions linked to the vaccine, how it will be rolled out, and much, much more. Since things tend to change so quickly at the moment, we feel it's important for you to know that we recorded this episode on Saturday, December 19th, just in case some of our information might be outdated. Now, let's get to it. Hi, Purvi. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this podcast with us and for everything that you've been doing and all the information you've been providing for people. I think it's super important right now that we get the message out there. And so really, the first thing I wanted to ask you is how did you become involved in the vaccine trials? So, you know, it was something that was an interest of mine. I've always kind of had a passion for you know, vaccines and vaccine immunology. So actually, when I was an internal medicine resident, the H1N1 outbreak and pandemic was then. But it, of course, it wasn't nearly as bad as this COVID-19 outbreak. So my research mentor got me involved in the actually the H1N1 vaccine trials with severe asthmatics. Uh, and then that was my first kind of foray into doing these studies, especially um, with vaccines. And I, I thought it was really cool because you can really have such an impact on an outbreak or on a pandemic. Um, And we were even then in communication with Dr. Fauci and the NIH. And so that was kind of my first introduction to him. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize, you know, that allergists did this. So I thought it was really eye-opening. So that was really cool. And then even after that, I've been involved with vaccine outreach things. So with the UN Foundation, I've gone to Zambia. I'm a volunteer with their Shot at Life program to raise awareness. So then when this happened, as an allergist, we're not on the front, front lines, like in the ICU or the ER, but I felt like this was a way I could potentially make a contribution because I just wanted to help be part of the solution, you know, in this this devastating crisis. Luckily, NYU, or I'm on faculty, they were doing these trials. The PI there, Dr. Mulligan, was very nice. I told him about my interest and he was like, oh yeah, absolutely. We need more physician investigators to be involved. And so that, that's how, how it happened. And so it's been really cool being part of this process. I started back in May with Pfizer from phase one, and then um, now we're doing AstraZeneca. So it's been really interesting because this is the first time, you know, science is moving so quickly and innovating so quickly. So that's how I ended up involved. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I hadn't really heard that story. So I was really curious to see how everything kind of unfolded. That's amazing. And then you kind of answered my next question. So you were mostly involved with the Pfizer biotech vaccine and not as much with the Moderna vaccine? Yeah, yeah, right. So Moderna, I wasn't involved in at all. Very Mm -hmm. similar technologies and platforms. But yeah, it was Pfizer uh, that I'm investigated for and then AstraZeneca, which is a little bit different. You know, it's not a messenger RNA vaccine. But those were the, you know, two studies that we were doing at NYU specifically. So that's why I was involved with those. Great. And you were involved in finding the patients and then monitoring them for side effects. 
Yeah, right. So, you know, as an investigator, yeah, we, we recruit the patients and then we see them at like the clinic visits, at the study visits when they come in to get the vaccine. And then, yes, we take all the after hour calls, too, with their side effects off firsthand, you know, from injection to afterwards to follow up um, how they did, how the data unfolded. We also had to collaborate and speak with obviously Pfizer and BioNTech, but also then, you know, the NIH and other government agencies as things changed and unfolded. Wow, amazing. So I guess, you know, another aspect that we wanted to kind of delve into right in the beginning of the conversation was vaccine definitions. Like when we're talking about all of these vaccines, there's a lot of terminology that comes up that I've heard that I think it would be helpful to kind of define for patients. Let's talk, Mm -hmm. let's start with herd immunity. Right. So, you know, herd immunity, that concept is basically when enough of a population is immune or has some sort of immune in which the infection rates are not spreading in proportions and the transmission is not spreading and people aren't being infected. Generally, for a population to reach herd immunity, at least 70 to 80 percent of that population has to be immune. Dr. Topal, Eric Topal, I follow him, you know, he published this great study. I don't know actually if he published it or he had shared it in the last few days. He basically said no infection has ever reached herd immunity without a vaccine. So I know a lot of people keep saying, why don't we just naturally let it happen? But uh, unfortunately, it doesn't work that way because the time it takes and the death toll and complications it takes is, you know, paramount. You know, so so no infection actually has reached herd immunity without a vaccine, which I didn't know that prior to two days ago. So I found that really interesting, too. Yeah. And I think the following question from that would be the immunity from vaccine compared to the immunity from infection. I think that that would be helpful to discuss. Right. I mean, specifically with COVID-19, we found that the vaccine actually gave much better immunity than getting naturally infected, you know, which is huge because here now you're having better protection without having to suffer um, all the complications of this terrible virus. And just like anecdotally speaking, I mean, I know some people who had antibodies from real COVID infections in June that no longer have them now when they retested themselves. So we We know that that happens. We know people are getting reinfected and getting sicker the second time. So it is nice that now we have vaccines available that are giving better immunity than actually getting sick. So people who have had COVID-19 should definitely get vaccinated. Yes, that's the current recommendations, especially if they're not still sick. Obviously, if you're still ill or recovering, um, you shouldn't get it. But even in the studies, people who had previous COVID infections 90 days or more prior were included. So I think it's definitely a good idea, especially if you're in one of those high risk groups uh, and you're at risk of getting sick again. And I think what you said earlier, just that when people are getting it a second time, they're actually getting sicker. Right. So just knowing that, because I think we didn't have that data even a month ago. I think that's something new that I'm hearing more and more. And I just heard, I actually heard a talk yesterday where you were speaking to somebody and you mentioned that. And I thought that was very interesting because a lot of my friends that have had it feel like they're walking around like less cautious. And I think that this, this is super important for people to understand and realize that they could actually get sicker the second time around. Right. Right. 
No, that's very true. And speaking on the cautious note, we're still advocating that people will have to keep masking, washing their hands, uh, distancing, even as these vaccines roll out, because we don't have information on the spread yet. You know, we're both the vaccine companies are looking at it, but we don't know for sure how much it reduces that asymptomatic spread or transmission. So we still have to be careful even with the vaccine. Yes, because absolutely. I, you know, I speak a lot on the flu vaccine with the American Lung Association. And one thing that we talk about a lot is that a vaccine doesn't necessarily prevent you from getting the infection, but mm-hmm. it prevents you from getting sick with the infection. And right. So I think that's something important that maybe we can talk about even more. Does that make sense, Courtney? Yeah. So what I understand is that you're saying even if you get vaccinated, you could still be someone who's carrying COVID-19 and you can still give it to other people. You just yourself won't be impacted by the disease itself. Right. But actually, you can also still get sick, too. Uh, The idea is even if you do get sick, you won't get as severely ill. So the idea is to keep people, you know, out of the hospitals, ICUs, you know, the death rate, bring that down as well, too. So again, it's not 100% guarantee. It's not a cure. And I think that's really important for people to understand. And that's why that social distancing, masking, and all of those precautions are still going to be important because we just need to continue to be careful. The next question, can we talk about mRNA vaccines in general and um, the history behind it and why it's such a big deal? Right. You know, so um, mRNA or messenger RNA vaccines, um, they're in a way new for in terms of a widely used vaccine, but the actual technology is not new. And I know that's a concern for many people that we're using this brand new thing that's never been tested before, but it's not true. It's actually been tested since the 1990s. So we have over 30 years of information about uh, messenger RNA and multiple trials have been done in the cancer space, as well as with other infectious diseases. So there's um, a Zika vaccine that's being tested as well as another influenza vaccine. So um, it's, I think it's actually really cool technology because what what it kind of is, is it's instructions or a recipe for your immune system um, to kind of uh, build the protein in the virus that makes everybody sick. Um, and by building that protein, that's what uh, triggers your immune system to mount that immunity. So to make antibodies, to make your T cells ready. Um, but then you're, you're doing all of this without actually having to get sick. You know, so there's no virus at all in this vaccine, no dead virus, no live virus. And, you know, one of the ex directors of the CDC, Tom Frieden, he had a great analogy that I saw that he's like, it's almost like a Snapchat message. So it sends instructions to your immune system, but then it goes away because I know the other fear everybody has. is, oh, I don't want this mRNA in my body forever and, you know, changing my genetics and my DNA. But that doesn't happen, actually. That's it, most of it is out of your system in a week and then even more so in the weeks after that. So that's kind of how it works. And I think it might actually be the vaccine of the future because uh, you're able to make it much faster than vaccines where you need to engineer a virus so that it's not harmful, you know, because if you use a dead virus or even a live virus, you have to engineer it in a way that you can inject it into people without making them sick. So I think that's why this technology was chosen because we needed something fairly quickly with this pandemic. Absolutely. Court, do you have any follow-up questions? Honestly, I feel like that was the best explanation I've ever heard of what an mRNA vaccine is. And I love the idea of it being a recipe for your immune system. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's all that it is. Recipe, whatever, if you like video games, I've used the cheat code analogy. Like it just, it just tells your immune system what to do without making you sick. So I think it's really like interesting uh, way of addressing the problem. 
Did you want to ask that question about the mRNA and the protein and allergic people and what they're kind of afraid of? Yeah, I was just, when I was reading about it, I saw that, so the mRNA asks your body to write these proteins, and I know that the allergic response is always to a protein. So is there a possibility that your body could be allergic to the protein that's being written? Yeah, that's actually a great question. I mean, uh, anything is possible, you know, um, but, you know, it's, it's pretty unlikely because um, that protein, even though the, M- the mRNA one is cleared out of your system quickly, but you know, to be allergic to an actual like viral protein, I don't think has ever been described. I know a lot of people developed urticaria symptoms as a result of COVID-19, just like they do with any other virus. So that question had come up, like, can you be allergic to COVID-19, you know, the actual protein? But there's no real evidence of that. The only way we would know really is if, you know, people started making, I guess, IgE to that protein. You know, we've been hearing a lot about a allergic reactions in general um, to this vaccine. But, you know, just to kind of reassure people, uh, people with allergies were included in all of the studies, like severe food allergies, drug allergies. We only excluded people with vaccine allergies. And usually if you do have a vaccine allergy, one, it's very rare. I think the the statistic was even less likely than being hit by lightning. It's like one in 1.3 million, uh, according to one of our journals, um, Jackie. But uh, even outside of that, it's usually an ingredient in the vaccine that you're allergic to. So one thought is, you know, there's polyethylene glycol in the Pfizer vaccine. So that's one thought is the culprit. But I know everybody keeps hearing anytime that there's an allergic reaction, it's all over the media. I would caution against panicking because we had thousands in the studies, both Moderna and Pfizer, that didn't have these reactions. And while those cases in the media are concerning, we really need more details because I'm sure Pyle can agree to this. A lot of things get uh, labeled as allergic reactions when they aren't. You know, fainting and flushing is very common when people see needles in general. There's something called a vasovagal reaction. So I don't know how many of these were allergic versus not. So I think uh, if that helps give people a peace of mind, it's actually not as common as the media is making it out to be. Absolutely. And I think that the history of those reactions was the day after anyways, which is not common for an IgE-mediated reaction. And you know, Courtney, if you eat a food that you're allergic to, it happens very quickly after you have that food. And so it's very unlikely that it was a true IgE-mediated reaction if it was any sort of reaction. And so there is a difference between an allergic reaction, anaphylaxis, and a side effect or an adverse reaction. Mm -hmm. And even those, obviously, Purvi, you probably were monitoring for those every day during the trials. And you know firsthand what those reactions were and what they Mm -hmm. commonly presented as. And so can we talk about that next, I think? Yeah, absolutely. The, The most common one usually were muscle pain and arm soreness. That by far was the most common, but then also fever, fatigue. People did say, oh, I felt really wiped out the first day, joint pains. But then the the great news was most people within 24 to 48 hours, it was totally gone. Some people needed Tylenol or Advil, but some didn't. None of them were severe. None were permanent or even long lasting. And pretty much everybody said they would still get the vaccine again, even if they felt crummy for a couple of days. That was by far the most common thing we saw. Um, I actually didn't hear of any cases of anaphylaxis or even hives, um, at least from our participants. And then there's also information out there about the first dose being tolerated better than Mm -hmm. the second dose. Can you comment a little bit on that? Because I know, you know, 
as we know, having people get two doses is going to be challenging in itself. Mm -hmm. And then if people have resistance to getting that second dose because of information out there that's saying that you might have a worse reaction, then I think that's going to make it even harder. So I just want to kind of dispel some of that too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So it is true that the symptoms are more severe on the second dose. So in a way, it's good news. You don't have to suffer twice. And there's many theories around that, you know, even with allergies, the immune system needs to be primed. It usually takes like repeated exposures to mount immune responses. So that's probably why on the first dose, you don't feel it as much in the second dose you do. Some people were lucky. They didn't feel much on either dose. So uh, it really depends just like even with the flu shot, right? Some people really feel symptoms from it. Some people feel nothing. So it's, it's, I think going to be very individualized person to person, but it's true. Majority of people, if they did feel anything, it was in the second dose. Can we talk about the second dose really quickly? Sure. Uh, I have two questions. So the first one is what happens if someone doesn't take the second dose. So because I see like there could be very high resistance to going there again. What happens if you don't have the second dose and why is the second dose important? So why is it in two parts instead of just one? Right. So it's important because they found that after one dose, um, they, you did have some immunity, but it, not everyone, one had immunity. You know, a lot of people needed that second dose, but even people who did, they were about 52 percent uh, protected, whereas after the second dose, they were over 90 percent protected. So the problem with that being partially immunized is one, um, you can still get sick. Obviously, you're more likely to get sick if you're only half protected than all the way. And two, you can still spread it around, obviously. So just having one dose and not going back for the second isn't helpful one for yourself because you're not fully protected from the virus, but you could also still be transmitting it to other people unknowingly. So that's why it's really important to have both doses as frustrating or annoying as it may be to go twice. One, you'll be helping yourself as well as, you know, the community around you. I mean, it would be terrible if you were only partially protected and then you pass the virus on to somebody you love or care about who's a more vulnerable or high risk person. The next thing that I'd want to talk about is just how we're going to roll all of this out and how we're going to monitor people getting the first and second Mm -hmm. dose. And I think that the question about who's next and who gets immunized first is also up in the air. But maybe now with the Moderna vaccine also being approved, Mm -hmm. maybe that's more hopeful, you know, that we'll be able to get everyone Mm -hmm. vaccinated sooner. So basically, um, yeah, it's going to be a huge logistical issue, the rollout. But some of the things that have been put into place is one, everybody's getting an immunization card that's been provided by the CDC to all sites. So basically, you know, when you got your first dose, uh, you know, lot number expiration date, and then you already have an appointment for your second dose before you even leave the building, which I think is smart. That way, there's less tracking people down. And I know most um, hospitals and clinics now have, um, because of technology, great ways for reminders, right? So text reminders, email reminders, apps. So it's a lot easier to track people and confirm them. So um, I know that most places, do plan to give those alerts so that you remember. Um, uh, so for Pfizer, it's three weeks later. For Moderna, it's four weeks later to come back and get that second dose. But yeah, it will be a challenge because, you know, it's, it's hard sometimes to keep people compliant. So it's very important that, you know, people do agree to come back and are on top of coming back for that reason. Um, but, you know, right now, you know, Group 1A is the healthcare workers and then those uh, members in 
and residents of long-term care facilities. So that also has been a little bit tricky because the, the definition is kind of broad. So I know some hospitals are prioritizing by frontline workers, which I think makes sense. So ICU, ER, but then some places are kind of just vaccinating every healthcare worker. So it's very different hospital to hospital and state to state. So, I mean, that's been a challenge all along with the pandemic. Everybody's doing something different, even with masks and everything. So we'll see. I think it's definitely going to be a logistical challenge and we're already hearing uh, issues popping up. But, you know, it's expected when you're trying to vaccinate so many people. Absolutely. And, you know, I was just thinking about one thing that I wanted to mention about the allergies. One other thing that I think everyone's been mentioning is that if you did have an allergic reaction, the places that are giving the vaccinations are going to be prepared to treat allergic reactions. Mm -hmm. So that's just something else to keep in mind. Right. A lot of our listeners are going to be allergic people and they're going to be worried about that. Right. So and just to add to that, you know, the current recommendations are if you're allergic to one of the ingredients, you know, in either vaccine, then absolutely don't take it. Um, If you have a history of vaccine allergy, then sit down with your allergist and discuss, you know, but if you don't have either of those two contraindications, you can take it. And right now the recommendations is 30 minutes afterwards to wait and to get in a medical facility, like you said. But I heard even as early as this morning that FDA is revising that. So that's another thing for the allergic community. Keep checking because, you know, these guidelines keep changing day to day. So that might change by Monday. (laughs) So, you know, just keep an eye out. And since we're talking about allergy and and if you're allergic to something in the vaccine, don't you shouldn't get it. Uh, I read that polyethylene glycol, so PEG is what people are reacting to, what they say. I read that it's a soy derivative. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I am someone with a soy allergy and that would if I was, you know, digging, digging, digging and found out that it's a derivative from soy, I would think, okay, then that's me. I can't take this vaccine. Can you clarify that? So, I mean, to my knowledge, I didn't, I actually didn't know that it was a soy derivative or had any uh, influence with soy or cross reactivity with soy. So, I mean, that I don't know if it's true, but I haven't heard that. I mean, usually what polyethylene glycol is, it's actually filler or preservative that's used in a lot of medications. So I actually have patients that we know are allergic to it, but even that allergy is super rare. So I feel like if there was that much cross reactivity with soy, we would know about it. The allergic community would know about it. But this is actually, this is the first time I'm hearing that there even is any relation to soy. But yeah, polyethylene glycol in itself is a, is a known allergy. But again, that's also a very rare allergy. Um, and, and we do have patients that do react to it. But even in these cases, we don't know for sure that it was the polyethylene glycol. It's just our um, hypothesis because everything else in the vaccine is like lipids, so salts, you know, it, it, they're all things that aren't very allergenic. So that's the theory. But, you know, to really blame that culprit, even though it's most likely we'd have to do allergy testing, either a blood test or skin test with the polyethylene glycol. OK, thank you. But that's and interesting. The, the soy I didn't know about. Yeah, I saw it. I can link to it. I saw it in the Allergic Living article. Oh. And I read that they said it's it's a soy derivative and it's a fatty acid and not a protein. And because it's protein is what we react to and what we have allergic reactions to, that it isn't something of a concern because a fatty acid isn't something that you would be allergic to. That's what I read. So we can link that and I can share it with you. 
Okay, thank you. And then some of the questions that we got from, um, you know, a post that I put up for this episode was, can you talk about how long the immunity lasts? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the million dollar question. Everyone always asks that. So uh, we don't know, you know, no one has a crystal ball. And the thing with this pandemic is all of us are learning as we're, you know, treating patients and developing treatments. So at least up to this point, we know the immunity is lasting. So that's about seven months in from the vaccine. And like I said, it's stronger, it's more permanent immunity so far compared to people naturally getting sick. But that's why we're monitoring all these patients in the trials for a minimum of two years, if not more, to see how long that immunity lasts, because that's going to determine how frequently we need to get the vaccine. Hopefully, it's at least a few years. And so it's not something that we have to do on a yearly basis. And how are you guys looking at the immunity? Yeah, so there's two ways. You know, one is antibodies to that spike protein. So the idea is that when that mRNA makes the spike protein, then your own immune system should start making antibodies. So that's one. But then we're also looking at T cells because, you know, T cells are very important in fighting viruses and so much attention has been on the antibodies. But for all viruses, T cells are extremely important. And what we found is people who are in the ICU or unfortunately dying from coronavirus had um, weakened T cells. They had T cell exhaustion or lower numbers of their T cells. So they're very important in this whole puzzle. In both trials, as well as I think the other ones as well, they're looking at T cell responses to coronavirus. So basically in a lab setting, they're seeing how um, each patient's blood responds to it, both from the T cell standpoint, as well as the antibodies. Somebody was talking about, you know, how have people been lied to about vaccines in the past? There's a mistrust of medicine and history. I mean, that's a real, I mean, that's a real problem. You know, I think it's worth addressing because especially in certain communities where we already have really wide health disparities, so black and brown communities, you know, they have, I think, a validated mistrust because they've been treated badly in the past. Like our history is is kind of shameful. Like there's things such as the Tuskegee experiments, you know, where African-Americans were tested, were misled and lied to and betrayed. So I, I don't blame people for having that mistrust. But the irony is, unfortunately, those communities are hit much harder by COVID-19. It's a catch-22 because they need the vaccines more so, you know, than, let's say, Caucasians because of those widening disparities. So not only African-Americans and our Latinx communities, but I even read something yesterday that New York specifically, uh, South Asians, Chinese Americans, they also had much higher rates of COVID as well as COVID deaths and severe COVID. So unfortunately, it's affecting many minority groups. And one of the criticisms of some of these studies were that there weren't enough minority groups included. But it was interesting because we were told to prioritize minority groups. But I think because of this mistrust, people weren't open to enroll. So it was an ongoing challenge because we know that these health disparities have been there long before COVID-19. And I think this is just bringing it to light. But what I would say to that is trust your own physician, trust your own medical community, because you might not trust the government, which I understand, or you might not trust other people, but ask a scientist or a physician that you do trust, because then that way you get accurate information. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful piece of advice. And I actually, that's my favorite thing from this whole episode is (laughs) that's so important is you have to find somebody that you trust within the medical community and ask them for advice on what they would do. And I think that that's probably the best advice we can give. I have one question. So what if I just encounter someone who's a total vaccine skeptic and they're like, I'm not going to get it. This is the worst thing. Don't do it. What are a couple of like sound bites that I could 
throw at that person? Yeah, my sound bites are, and it might be different for everybody, right? But mine are that to me, the virus is far scarier than the vaccine. We've already lost 310,000 Americans, you know, over 1.5 million people globally. I mean, that's insane. I think we've just gotten used to death and dying because I heard a statistic we're losing more than we lost on 9-11 on a daily basis, which is mind-blowing to me. So to me, that's far scarier than any potential side effect from a vaccine that may or may not happen 10 or 15 years down the line. Um, So that's usually what I say. And then I also just give my own personal uh, account that, you know, I plan to get the vaccine as soon as it's offered to me. I actually even enrolled my own parents (laughs) into the Moderna trial because they're both in high risk groups. So I would never put people I care about in harm's way. So that's how much faith I have in it. So those are kind of the sound bites that I give. But I think people should be far more scared of the long term consequence or side effect of the virus, because even if you do survive, these survivors are by no means normal. They're living with strokes. They're on dialysis. And these are people who were healthy before lung failure, needing transplants. So I don't know. I would take a chance on a vaccine than having to live like that. Yeah. And I think even people with milder infections are having a chronic fatigue syndrome and friends that, you know, weren't hospitalized. They weren't sick enough to end up hospitalized, thankfully, but they're still feeling just that they're constantly feeling more tired and that they're in a brain fog and that something's just chronically off with how they're feeling. And so we haven't seen that with the vaccine. And I think that's important to remember. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think just for our allergic community, one of the things that I wanted to have us comment on together, Pervy, is just the egg and flu vaccine situation, just since this is vaccine episode for all practical purposes. We just wanted to kind of dispel some of those myths. Also, 2012, that that big study was published in the New England Journal, but still. Right. Even if it was 2017, it's yeah. ridiculous that people are still uh, even being asked if they're allergic to eggs before the flu shot. I mean, I completely agree. It's a big misconception, even amongst other physicians. I think the key points are that there's no special precautions needed. You don't we don't even need to know if you have an egg allergy before you get the flu vaccine. And that's any right. type of flu vaccine, the nasal or the injection. And there's no reason to be monitored afterwards. Uh, but if you are still scared and if there's any reason, you can always get it, you know, done with your allergist. Lastly, just that it is still important to get your flu vaccine this year and that you can get it alongside your COVID vaccine if when it does become available to you. Yeah. In the studies, we made people wait a month apart from the two just because it's a study. So you have to be carefully control everything. But yeah, we are recommending everybody get uh, all their vaccines. But if you feel more comfortable separating them anyway, there's not enough COVID vaccine right now for everyone anyway. So if you haven't gotten your flu shot, get it now. So you're ready for when your COVID vaccine is available. Yeah. And it's not too late to get your flu vaccine. You can get it as late as February and when the flu is still circulating, anytime the flu is still circulating, it's still not too late. I think we covered most everything, Court. Do you see anything that we didn't cover on our list? The only thing we didn't cover is just like my own curiosity is like the difference between the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine, if you know what they are. And 
because both are going to be available in a lot of countries, how are they going to choose who gets what? Do you get to choose? You know, I just I'm just curious, like when you have two options, how do you decide or whether you don't even get to decide the government's like this is going here and this is going there? Right. No, that's a great question. So, I mean, they're both similar technologies are both mRNA or messenger RNA, but they've been approved a little differently. Pfizer, I know, is 16 and up right now and Moderna is 18 and up. Um, the other difference is, you know, Pfizer has to be kept in those super cold refrigerators, sub sub zero, negative 90 Celsius, uh, whereas Moderna can be kept in a regular fridge. So I think Moderna will be a lot easier for um, people to access in the communities because right now Pfizer is only at facilities that have these fridges. So, I mean, but otherwise they're pretty similar in efficacy. You know, they're pretty similar in side effect profile. Right now, I don't think you we will have a choice because it's basically whatever is available since the supply is so limited. But I think as um, we learn more and as more supply hopefully becomes available, you may be able to choose. But right now, probably not, just given that there isn't enough supply in America or globally. But some minor differences between the study. I know Moderna looked like it was a little bit better in severe COVID, but barely. And it prevented 100 percent of severe cases, whereas Pfizer did most of them. They had one severe case in the in the vaccine group. But both of them had over 94 percent efficacy overall, which is great. So I think as we learn more, there might be certain groups that one may be better for another. But we can't really say until there's like kind of a head to head study done where half people get one, half people get other, then we go from there. But I don't think we're going to have a choice for a while, to be honest. This is whatever you get. And can you quickly talk about the other vaccines that are in the pipelines and what what technology they're using and when you think those might be approved? AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson are the other two that might be close behind. And they're a different technology. So there's something called an adenovirus vector. So basically they use an inactivated common cold virus and they use that to transport that spike protein to your immune system and then mount the immune response. So it's a little different than the messenger RNA. But AstraZeneca is also two doses. But the nice thing about Johnson and Johnson, it's only one dose. So if that proves to be safe and effective, that'll be great because it'll be a lot easier to get people vaccinated quickly. But from what I've heard is they're planning actually to apply for EU soon in January, because I think Johnson Johnson already has enrolled close to 40,000 people. And I think maybe AstraZeneca is nearing there, too. So um, it'll be good, especially with the limited supply, if we have other options or if allergic, you know, to the polyethylene glycol, there will be other options. That's great. Perfect. Now I feel like we covered everything. (laughs) So that's great. Oh, actually, there's one last thing. Pregnancy and lactation. So right now, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology is actually recommending it for pregnant women. They're saying it's safe to take it, especially if you're in one of those high risk groups. Now, just to be clear, it has not been properly tested in pregnant women because for most clinical trials, pregnant women are excluded unfortunately, because, you know, it's a theoretical risk to both mom and baby. But from what we do know so far, especially the women of childbearing age that did get the vaccine, we believe it will be safe in pregnancy. And pregnancy is also in itself a high risk condition for severe COVID. So if you're a healthcare worker, if you're in a situation where you're pregnant and you're at risk, it's a good idea to likely get the vaccine. And the same thing goes for breastfeeding and lactating moms. There doesn't appear to be any risk for them either. And then an added benefit maybe is that you might even pass antibodies onto your baby because as we know, baby relies on mom for a lot of immunity in the first six months of life. So maybe you might be, you know, vaccinating two people 
<laughs> you know, for the price of one with the breastfeeding or lactating mom. So for, for them, for sure, it's recommended as well. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Purvi. So now I feel like we've covered everything. <laughs> and I think this topic is just, there's just so many things that people are worried about and concerned mm-hmm. about. So it, uh, I'm sure we've missed some things that somebody will have questions about, but maybe we can do a couple of posts later. But thank you again for doing this for us. And thank you for, you know, continuing to take any requests you get. It's yeah. just really nice to see how open you are to um, talking to people about this. I think there's so much misinformation, so I'm happy to put out any factual information as possible. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Remember that all information you hear today is for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider. And also, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And if you have a second, help spread the word by rating our podcast and sharing with your friends and family who might also be interested in learning more about allergies, asthma, and immunology. You can always stay up to date by checking out our Instagram, The Itch Podcast, where you can leave questions you are itching to know, or check out our website, which is www itchpodcast.com, which contains more information about the subjects we covered in today's episode and every episode. Until next time, have a fabulous week.